Good morning, and welcome to Simply Economics. It's Tuesday, February 27th. On today's show, we'll be discussing the wealth of generations and the importance of economic integration in the Asia-Pacific region. Plus, we'll take a look at the crucial role of economic reform for growth in Brazil. This coverage and more, up next. I'm David, and you're listening to Simply Economics. We start off with an examination of the significant increase in household wealth-to-income ratios and a surge in housing and equity prices in rich countries over the past four decades. These developments have been linked to critical macroeconomic trends, such as the decline in interest rates and in labor income shares. Recent research has examined the life cycle wealth accumulation of different U.S. birth cohorts, shedding light on the evolving patterns of aggregate wealth and saving over the past six decades. Here to delve deeper into this topic is our correspondent from Simply Economics. Indeed, David. The research focused on the wealth accumulation of U.S. cohorts born after 1900, revealing two distinct patterns. Firstly, newer cohorts retiring after the 1980s, such as the baby boomers, accumulate significantly more wealth by retirement age than their predecessors. However, this wealth increase predominantly reflects changes in the top half of the wealth distribution, leading to growing within-cohort inequality. What about the wealth of these cohorts post-retirement? Interestingly, the research found persistently stable post-retirement wealth over time. This is a well-documented phenomenon known as the retirement savings puzzle. It's not exclusive to contemporary cohorts, but persists irrespective of the economic environment experienced by different cohorts upon retirement. So, what are the driving forces behind these shifts in wealth accumulation? The analysis identified two drivers. Firstly, the steeper age wealth profiles of recent cohorts largely stem from significant capital gains in housing and equity markets since the 1980s. In contrast, older cohorts built their wealth primarily through saving. Secondly, there's a life cycle saving reshuffling, meaning a shift towards increased saving during middle age, followed by decreased saving in old age. And how do these changes in life cycle wealth impact macroeconomic trends in household wealth and saving? The changing patterns in life cycle wealth have profound implications for our understanding of macroeconomic trends in household wealth and saving. The rise in aggregate wealth income ratios since 1980 can largely be understood as a steepening of the age wealth profile among newer cohorts alongside an increase in the income share received by the rich. Moreover, there's been a notable trend in private saving since the 1980s, the emergence of significant saving polarization. While the middle-aged rich are saving more, there is a marked dissaving among the elderly. What does this mean for the future? Are these trends likely to continue? That's a crucial question. The rise in capital gains since the 1980s appears to be at the core of the change in life cycle profiles, especially benefiting cohorts that have retired recently, such as the baby boomers. Meanwhile, younger generations, like millennials, are faced with significantly higher asset prices than their predecessors. This disparity poses a crucial question for policymakers. Is the evolving age wealth profile a result of one-off capital gains, or is it here to stay? Thanks for that update, Celeste. Now shifting our focus to the Asia-Pacific region, 
Economic integration there is now closely comparable to that of the European Union, particularly in terms of regional value chains and social integration. This is according to a report released by the Asian Development Bank. Here to discuss this further is Michael, a correspondent for Simply Economics. Can you tell us more about this report and its findings? Certainly, David. The report, titled the Asian Economic Integration Report 2024, uses the Asia-Pacific Regional Cooperation and Integration Index to measure integration. It found that the Asia-Pacific region shows integration comparable to the EU in regional value chains along with people and social integration. What factors have contributed to this level of integration? The report highlights the significant progress observed in the region's technology and digital connectivity dimension. This has been driven by the adoption of digital transformation policies by many economies, a pace that increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. And how has this integration impacted the region? According to the Asian Development Bank, regional integration has become a crucial buffer against global shocks and has helped mitigate their negative effects. This is particularly important as rising protectionism and the risks of global fragmentation compound economic challenges. So, what does the report suggest for the future? The report suggests that increased cooperation and investment in connectivity can strengthen economic resilience and provide mutual benefits. It also emphasizes the importance of closer dialogue and discussion on regional policies to help Asian economies better meet the challenges and risks of supply chain vulnerability and climate change. Thanks for that update, Michael. Shifting our focus now to Brazil, where economic reform is seen as a crucial step for growth. The country's Freedom Index has seen a hump-shaped evolution with improvements in women's economic freedom and trade freedom being the main drivers. However, the country has also seen a decline in political freedom and legal freedom. Here to discuss this in more detail is Abby, a correspondent for Simply Economics. Can you tell us more about the evolution of freedom in Brazil? Certainly, David. The Freedom Index in Brazil has seen a clear hump-shaped evolution from 1995 to 2013, with the Freedom Score either increasing or remaining relatively stable. This was driven by improvements in women's economic freedom and trade freedom. The increase in women's economic freedom saw a significant jump in 2002, which coincided with a change in government and the Workers' Party taking office. They were committed to increasing women's economic freedom and in 2003, some parts of the civil code were reformed, leading to an improvement in women's rights. Trade freedom also saw a positive trend beginning in 1996, with liberalizing reforms introduced by the government of President Fernando Henrique Cardoso. What about the decline in political freedom and legal freedom? Yes, there has been a decline in political freedom, possibly due to polarization. When society is politically polarized, there are often claims about an unclean electoral process. This is something we've seen recently in the United States and other countries. As for legal freedom, the judicial system in Brazil has been affected by executive interventions, justifying a deterioration of judicial independence scores. The system has also become very influenced by politics, with the Supreme Court making decisions only to reverse them a few years later. What about the economic prospects for Brazil? The economic prospects for Brazil are largely tied to labor productivity, which has been a clear signal of the country's economic future. 
However, businesses in Brazil face a number of hurdles, including high and inefficient taxes, inefficient regulations, difficulties regarding long-term financing, and a rigid labor market. Additionally, the country's security situation poses a significant challenge. Unless this improves, it's hard to foresee improvements in other dimensions. Are there any potential solutions or reforms that could help Brazil overcome these challenges? Yes, there are a few potential solutions. The proposed tax reform, for example, could simplify the tax code and curb exceptions, loopholes, and litigation. The finance minister is also committed to tackling the fiscal deficit. Additionally, Brazil has the cleanest energy mix of any country and should be able to deal effectively with the illegal deforestation in the Amazon. Reforestation of the Amazon forest could be a source of cheap carbon capture at scale, ha, making Brazil a big exporter of goods with an excellent climate footprint. That's certainly something to watch. Thanks, Abby. Now, shifting our focus to the global stage, in the aftermath of a pandemic that has reshaped economies worldwide, Mauritius stands out for its remarkable resilience and robust recovery, according to the International Monetary Fund, IMF. The IMF's recent report highlights a significant growth in Mauritius' real GDP, which soared to 8.9% in 2022, largely due to a surge in tourism and manufacturing. Here to delve deeper into this is our correspondent, Bella. Can you tell us more about the IMF's findings and the broader economic landscape in Mauritius? Certainly, David. The IMF's assessment underscores a vibrant economy that has exceeded pre-pandemic levels, with an estimated growth rate of 6.9% in 2023. The projections for 2024 remain optimistic, with an expected real GDP growth of 4.9%, driven by significant public projects and a revitalized tourism sector. However, the global economic environment, fraught with potential downturns and the risks of increased fuel and food prices due to international conflicts, poses significant threats. What has been central to Mauritius's economic success story? Mauritius' economic resilience can be attributed to the strategic deployment of pre-pandemic fiscal and external buffers, which softened the economic blow of the pandemic. However, the IMF highlights the urgent need for recalibrating the macroeconomic policy mix. This involves growth-friendly fiscal consolidation to rebuild eroded buffers and ensure financial stability while protecting the most vulnerable segments of society. What does the path forward for Mauritius look like? The path forward involves advancing structural reforms, including improving governance, reducing skill mismatches in the labor market, improving productivity, and fostering investments in digitalization and climate-resilient infrastructure. These initiatives are vital for supporting private sector investment and promoting economic diversification ensuring the long-term sustainability and resilience of the economy. What about the challenges that Mauritius faces? Achieving sustainable growth requires addressing fiscal sustainability and the challenges posed by a negative current account balance. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the need to reevaluate work-life balance and recognize the essential roles of often overlooked workers, prompting a rethinking of economic priorities and compensation models. Balancing the demands of trade unionists, managing public expectations for welfare measures, and steering the economy through uncertain waters will require a nuanced and forward-looking approach. How has the government's hope for an upgraded country credit rating been affected? Despite these challenges, Moody's maintained its BA3 
Stable Outlook Rating for Mauritius in January 2024. While this rating avoids the risk of a negative outlook, it falls short of the positive outlook that would have signaled a move away from borderline junk status. Moody's assessment underscores the need for Mauritius to address its economic vulnerabilities and work towards a more stable and prosperous future. As we've just heard from Bella, Mauritius exemplifies post-pandemic economic resilience, balancing strategic policy recalibration, structural reforms, and a commitment to innovation and sustainability. And on that note, we wrap up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Simply Economics. We'll see you back here tomorrow.